0: As we get all situated up here and hopefully take out your Bible, we're in Mark 12, verses 28 through 34 is the text for this morning. I just want to remind you, um, there's a certain football team that's playing next week, and um, life is not about the Packers. (laughs) Life is about Jesus. And so, uh, if you have to leave early, well, you shouldn't leave early, just come to first service, and and if you happen to find yourself in second service, and for some reason, if the preacher is going a little bit long and you're looking at the clock, just let it go. Because God wants you here. If you're here next Sunday and it's like 5 to 12, life will go on. You'll be good. You need to be here. So just kind of just have that in your head just in case. Not just next Sunday, but throughout the football season. I like the Packers. Packer parties, cool family get-togethers. It's great, um, but Jesus is better. All right, um, Mark 12, 28 through 34. We're continuing in Mark. Give you one more second to turn there. In the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 848. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked them, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray. Oh God, in light of this text, we pray that you would open our hearts so that we would love you more and better and that we would love others, our neighbors, better. You are great and glorious. You are why we exist. Father, I pray for for us as a church that we would increase in love for you. Please use this text to do what only your spirit can do and and do some spiritual surgery on our hearts, on our minds, on our souls, and on our wills, our strength. Father, increase our passion, our joy, our affections for you, for your son. Help us to cry out to you more and more and more. Lord, I lift up especially the struggling believer this morning. May this text remind them of your great love for them. May you stir in their hearts greater joy in you. And Father, we pray that you would use this passage to to bring life where there is only death right now. You would use it to bring hope and peace and joy. For in Christ, in your love, there is joy and there is peace and there is hope. Father, we pray these things because of our great need. We're always in need of you. We're always in need of you. So please, Father, meet these needs and all of our needs. Increase our faith this morning through your word and spirit. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a good summary makes the complex simpler, the lengthy shorter, the confusing clearer. Rightly used, a good summary helps us to see the big picture so that we don't get lost in the details. Christians have used creeds and confessions and catechisms to teach their children, to disciple other Christians, proclaim the gospel, pass on true doctrine, defend against heresy. The creeds, confessions, and catechisms, at least the good ones, are simply ripe. They're overflowing. They're they're comprised mainly of Scripture and they are good, and they are worthy tools for Christ's church. Now, they're not equal in authority to Scripture, but when used rightly, they are simply summaries of what the Scriptures teach that help us learn the doctrines of the church and to to defend the gospel. Now, I share this about summaries, and I put that in your head because what we have in this text, what Jesus gives us is a summary of something that is very complex, that is very lengthy, and at times confusing. He gives us a summary of God's law. Now there were disagreements about God's law in Jesus' day. It's partly why there are so many different groups or sects of Jews. And the remain disagreements, we might say debates, discussions, Even within the evangelical church, I'm talking Bible-believing Christians who love God, who agree not just on the the bare minimums of the faith, but even more than that, who are in even the same denomination or group of churches, or even in the same uh, convention of Baptists, they have differing views on the law. Now, this is a text with a summary. So my intention, and I won't get into all the details and make it all confusing, but it's a worthy thing for you to, to think about, consider, wrestle with, I would encourage you. If you, if you want to know uh, some recommended books that I would uh, share with you about God's law and how it should be applied to the Christian in the Christian life or whether or not it should be, I'll gladly recommend them to you and give you the names of them. However, the aim this morning in this sermon is to focus on the big picture of God's law. And not ultimately so that you would just understand God's law and the big picture of God's law, but so that you would be amazed by God's love. Because rightly understood, if you have the big picture, as you will see, the law is about love. Jesus gives his summary of the law in response to a question that he's asked by a scribe. Now the scribes were the theologians of the religious leaders. They were the experts in biblical interpretation among the Jews. So it makes great sense that a scribe would approach Jesus with a question about the law. If you've been here the last two, three, four weeks, you're very familiar with this section of scripture, uh, the end of Mark's uh, gospel in, in chapter, the end of chapter 11 in Mark's gospel. And basically all of chapter 12, it's, it's, it's pretty much religious group after religious group, these leaders from these religious groups, coming to Jesus with these loaded questions. They have an agenda. They want to stump the man that they think is a chump. They want to trick-trap Christ. That's their agenda. The Loaded questions that they think are going to stump Jesus. And week after week, we've seen our Lord handle the questions magnificently. Again, there's, there's the, the, the direct, the clear uh, scriptures that reveal uh, the, the divinity of Christ. And then there's these other kind of secondary ones that help support look at his wisdom, how he, I mean, he's not a politician. but he's, he's a master at answering questions and not deflecting questions, not changing this up, but answering the question rightly, and it's wonderful to read and see. And so we would suspect that this scribe probably has that same agenda. He wants to come and prove that he's better than all the other religious leaders, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, before him, that he can finally do it. And yet that doesn't seem to be this scribe's agenda. Mark tells us in verse 28 that the scribe had heard Jesus' answer to the Sadducees' question about the resurrection. Maybe he was even there for the the question before that about taxes and, and between the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we don't know for sure if he was there for all of that, but, but whatever he heard, he was impressed by Jesus' wisdom. And so he asks him what I think is an honest question concerning an important and yet very difficult matter. The law. He says, which commandment, that is which law of God, is the most important of all? That's his question. Now, according to rabbinic tradition, there were 613 different laws, different commands, all within just the first five books of the Bible. Now, of these laws, that which covered ceremonial, moral, and civil matters, there were 365, and think about it, 365, there were 365 laws that were put in the negative. So uh, don't worship false gods. Don't murder. Don't eat pork. And that would be so hard for so many of us bacon lovers, right? Uh, while I was on vacation, side, side note, I had this wonderful bacon donut. I don't even eat donuts very much. But, but so, so I would have broken this um, negative law. Uh, not only that, but don't consult a psychic, a medium. Don't try and speak to the dead. And the rest of these 613 laws were put in the positive. Worship God. Respect your father and mother. Pray daily. Now as you can imagine, with so many laws, there was, was great debate about which were the most important or which law was the most important. And you can read through uh, various theological works and you can find out either from Josephus or others uh, these summaries from different rabbis on, on what the, the law was really all about now some of the laws were even considered lighter or lesser laws now this didn't mean that that to break them it, it wouldn't be sin it was it was that as far as earthly consequences go, if you broke one of these lesser or lighter laws, well, the consequence would be lighter or lesser. So you, you might have to pay uh, a certain fine, or make an offering, uh, or do a give a, a, repu, uh, a repayment to somebody that you had sinned against. Whether you know it was with an animal or something like that, you you'd hurt an animal by accident. You might have to give one of your animals to that person who you hurt their animal. Those are the lesser, lighter. And other laws were considered weightier or greater. These laws carried severe consequences if broken. Some cases, even the death penalty. Now Jesus recognized, Jesus himself recognized this distinction between the law when he rebuked the scribes and and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, saying, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So these, these scribes and Pharisees were, were worried about these ties, these kind of secondary ties, but, but they were not being just or merciful or, or faithful. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus doesn't say don't do those, those, those laws that you're to keep, don't break those, but, but you've, you've misplaced your priority. Now in light of these things, the scribe in Mark 12, 28 asks Jesus for clarification. I really do think he just wants better understanding. He wants to know which commandment is the most important. He's he's asking Jesus, which is the weightiest, the foremost, primary? He he wanted to know what Jesus considered was, was at the very core of God's law and what was to be the priority, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. What is the law all about? He's asking for a summary. And Jesus begins his answer by quoting from a very important section of scripture, Deuteronomy 6. It contains what is called the Shema, a a Jewish confession of faith given from God to his people through the prophet Moses at a very important time in redemptive history. It was right before Israel was to, to cross into the promised land. So this is something like a, a declaration of independence, a constitution. And they were to to memorize this. They were to, to know it backwards and forwards. Uh, they, they were to to have it ingrained in their minds. And not just that generation, but they were, if you remember Deuteronomy 6, if you're familiar, they were to pass it on to their children. They were to teach these things to their children. So every single generation after that first generation was to teach the very same things to the next generation, and the next generation would learn them. And not only that, but but this, this part of God's word was to be recited in the morning and at night every single day by a faithful Jew. And so it became one of those 613 commandments. One commentator describes it as being the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed of Judaism. In verse 29 and 30, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, again from the Shema, saying, The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, we might be tempted, and this often is the case, to, to quickly go from verse 29 into verse 30 because that's what many of us understand is the summary. What's the law all about? Love God and love people. That's actually some church's mission statement. And I think it's, it's not a terrible, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it needs more. Love God, love people. Um, not, not anything against that mission statement. And I, generally, I just really struggle with mission statements for churches. Because how do you capture what the entire Bible says the church should do in one sweet, catchy sentence that is so awesome that people want to put it on their arm as a tattoo? Like, I, I've tried, and, and I just go back, and there's, it's, just, it's impossible. And, and so I just kind of give up. And we actually spent time as elders on a mission, and I think we need one. So even though I struggle with it, I think we, I, we have one, um, but we, we, we need to think through it. And we, we haven't used it for a while and, and maybe add some things and clarify some things just to be clear. Um, but, but I struggle because it's, it, it's just lacking. No matter how big the sentence is, and I'm a run-on sentence guy. So like, how, no matter how big it is, it just can't capture everything. And so we're tempted to love God, love people, and then move on past 29, right into 30. But that would be a mistake, because something very interesting is found in Jesus' answer. Before he summarizes the law, before he gets into verse 30 and says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he says something first. Jesus begins his answer by stating this fundamental truth about God. So you cannot understand the commandments of God unless you know the God who has given the commandment. And so God begin, or Jesus, who is God, begins his summary not with a commandment but an uh, an arrow. He's pointing this scribe to who God is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are not multiple God's. There's not a, a, a God over the sea and a God over the land. And there's also not, you know, along with that, a God over the sun, the sun God. There's not, Mother Earth is not a God. Uh, there, there are not always multiple gods. There is one God. One God. And there is no other God before him, besides him, behind him, or beyond the one true God. God is God alone in number. And this one also gets at his supremacy. No one is like him. He, he is. He is beyond comparison. He is unique. He has exclusive rights on divinity, this God. All that God is, no one else is in the same manner or degree. Now theologians have divided God's, ca- God's attributes into two categories. There's the communicable attributes. So these are the attributes that, that his image bearers, that's us, share with God. So we, we We share these and God has has willingly condescended in creation in such a way that that we bear his image and we share these qualities with him. And there's this other category, the incommunicable attributes that that we don't share with him. And, And yet even the attributes that we do share with God, we don't match up even close to who he is and how he displays them in his perfect character. No one is holy like God. No one no one is perfect like god in regards to his power god is omnipotent god is more beautiful than anyone or anything we have ever seen more beautiful than anything anyone in this room has beheld with their eyes god is more beautiful i've seen in my relatively short life some beautiful things some beautiful people my wife all right right there beautiful i love her she's the most beautiful woman in my eyes I, say that willingly and joyously and truthfully. Um, I've seen things in creation that are beautiful. I've been able to travel. I've been in airplanes seeing, you know, the, the ocean below. I, I was just at the Gulf of, of Mexico with my family where we got to see creatures. And actually, it's, it's, we were right where the path of the storm is, is coming through. And I feel kind of bad for the people. But two weeks ago, I was there, and I'm thankful that it didn't come through there. I, I, those people are going to see something Amazing. And yet, I love this about God. He's more beautiful than anything our eyes could ever behold in creation. That includes my wife, that includes your spouse, that includes anything beautiful. God is more. I love that. You, you can't see anyone more beautiful than God. He is most beautiful and God is eternal and self sufficient He is just and gracious he 's wise and merciful. The list goes on and on of who God is perfectly and completely. God is the source he 's the creator and sustainer of life He has therefore exclusive rights over everyone and everything he 's the maker He made us you know and just like a little kid draws a picture and they say that 's mine that 's their picture i i don 't own it they have you know, intellectual rights on that sc- scribble that's hanging up on my, my uh, refrigerator and in my office. Like that, That's theirs. Maybe they gave it to me. Okay, so it's mine now, I guess, if we're going to get particular here. But, but you get the picture. The maker has rights. God's the maker. He has rights over everything. God is the one who we were made by and for. The apostle Paul, speaking of God the Son, Jesus Christ, writes this in Colossians 1.16. And it is another evidence of the divinity of Christ. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I love it. Why were you made? For Jesus. You were made for Jesus. Before Jesus says... That the greatest commandment is to love God, he points to who God is. To love God is to love the loveliest. To love God is to love the one that you were made to love. Now, I've seen enough chick flicks, and again, I'm a husband, I love my wife, to understand this whole talk of soulmate. I get it. There, there's something, you know, you've got to find the one that you were made for. Well, whoever you're married to is the one that God designed for you. Like That's, that's how this thing whole it, it works in the Bible. But, but I get the whole, the, the idea. Soulmate, you gotta find the one that was, that was made for you and that you fit perfectly with. Well, in the purest, most holiest sense of the word, our soulmate is God. We are made to love him and as we see with our souls. Because of who God is, and this should be Obvious, we are to love him. And yet, because of our fallen condition, because of our sinfulness, what should be so obvious is not. Instead of loving God the, the most because of who God is, we love ourselves the most because of who we are. And this is a mantra in the culture today. You got to love you. You got to, and I get it, like, yeah, we're made in God's image, but, but there's this weird evil twist to those types of statements. It's like, you be you. But what if you is not in Christ yet? (laughs) Don't be you because you is going to hell and you need to not be you and you need Jesus and you need to be in Christ. Like, that's where this whole thing gets off about you being you. No, don't do that. Look to Jesus and be in Jesus and be like Jesus. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 1, we worship the creation rather than the creator. There's no one like God (laughs) There's no one more lovely than God. There's no one more deserving of our love than God. And we ought to love God simply for this reason because he's God. Because he's glorious. Because he's beautiful more than, than, than our eyes can behold his beauty. And our, we will be beholding his, his beauty and his glory and his greatness, all that is radiating from God for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. And it will never get old, it will just get better. And that's why God is to be loved, because he's that awesome. Quoting almost verbatim from Deuteronomy 6.5, Jesus continues his summary of the law in verse 30 with these words, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What Jesus says here reveals the totality and the depth that, that humans are to love God. It's not enough to just love God. You gotta love him with everything. I mean, we're complex beings. It's part of being made in God's image. He made us, he's creative. You just look at humans and how the body works and functions. Wow, designer, creator, and this designer and creator is amazing. And he made us to love him with every part of our being. And so there are these categories, these, these pieces that make us up. And Jesus says we're to love God with everything we are. This Jesus says is the most important commandment, and, and so how does a person do that? How, how can you love God? You know, in preparation for getting married, I was assigned uh, Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. I think it's a helpful book, and it it, it you know I, there might be other ideas out there. You know, just but but understanding. So if you don't know the book, and and again it's helpful book so if you're thinking about getting married you are married you know, there's some very practical helpful things in here and the basic premise of the book is this there are five ways that that people experience love and give love and uh, if especially in a marriage you need to know how your spouse best receives love or, or how your spouse wants to be loved and you need to know how they give love and so it, it's, there's kind of this figuring out that, that needs to take place. And especially like, say, you're a gift giver. That's how you show love. And your spouse doesn't really experience love by receiving gifts. Like, you got to work that out because here you are spending all this money and you get to, you know, show your love for them. So you get to spend it, but they're like, I don't care. Just spend time with me. Just tell me that you love me. Hold my hand. And so you, there's this kind of figuring out that happens. And, and that's why, again, Pushing back against the culture. I believe that a, a true Christian married, marriage built on God's love, it, in the end, I mean, there's seasons and there's difficulty, it gets better because you figure out how awesome this person is and how God has brought you together in his providence. And, and so we push back against the lies of the culture that, you know, ball and chain, that's a lie in the pit of hell. No, this is, she's a princess husband that has been entrusted to your care, a princess of the king of the universe. And likewise in the other way for, for women and, and their husband. Like, it, so anyways, you got this figuring out that you got to do. When it comes to God, there's, we don't figure it out. It's not up to us. You know, maybe God just loves it when I skip to work. And that, that's the best way to love God. Now, could that glorify? Yes. Do everything you do unto, unto God. Do it for his glory. Yes. But if you go, you know, God, God experiences love for me simply the way that I want to love him. And the way that I want to love him is sinning. Like, obviously that's not going to work. So God has, has revealed to us the way that he desires to be loved. You might say they are love languages for God. And how is it? First of all, the first one is with all of our hearts. The heart represents the center of our being. It is the seat of our emotions and passions, our desires. Our love for God is to be our greatest love. This doesn't mean that we're not to love others. That's the second commandment that Jesus adds to his answer, to love your neighbor as yourself. But it does mean this, that the surpassing passion of your heart, your greatest desire, your affections, you, who you want most is God? It is to be God. That—that's how God wants you to love Him with all your heart, your passion. I, I love it because it—it it says that that the the belief that Christianity is this stoic, dry, go to church, put in your time, give some money, just kind of just robotic like you know, no feelings, just kind of get through the Christian life. It, that, that's junk. Because written in to not just. This passage, but remember, this is coming from something like the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, the, the, um, the, the marching orders of Israel, is this. Love God with all your heart. Your passion, your desire, your affections are to be for God. He wants them. Our greatest joy is to be in God. Our deepest passion is to be for God. And our strongest desire is to be for God. That, that's what it looks like to love God with all your heart. A second one is that we are to love God with all our soul. We're not merely physical beings. God created us body and spirit and body, soul. Now, I don't get exactly how this works or what this looks like, uh, but the reality is that it's not just the outward actions. It's not just what people see that we're to love God with. It's, it's what we're made of spiritually. It's, a, it's inside of us. It's in, with our spirit that we're to love God. I can't draw a picture of that. I, I don't know exactly what this looks like again, but, but God wants it. He wants you to love him with, with all that you have and that includes your soul. It's spiritual, this love. It's, it's not temporal. It's spiritual. It's an eternal love that we're to have for God. Third, Jesus says that we must love God with all our mind. Now, this is why i said nearly verbatim i think i said it i know i said it first service that jesus quotes from deuteronomy 6 nearly verbatim because this is not in deuteronomy 6 this command to love god with all your mind now some scholars believe that it's probably actually just part of strength the next one but the interesting thing is that jesus knows the scripture (laughs) And he puts it in here and, and another interesting aspect to this mind thing is that when the scribe quotes back what Jesus says, he doesn't include the mind. And so I think Jesus is, is clarifying something. He's, he's getting at something. We're to love God with everything we have and that includes our mind. Now what does that look like? How can we love God with our minds? It begins with his word. Reading it. Opening it up mining the treasures that are revealed in the scriptures the promises of god the character of god what god is doing in the world and why he's doing it and that's where it starts how do you love god with your mind you study the scriptures you look at the book <laughs> Loving God is far more than learning facts. Now, I'm not saying that, that you need to be some scholar or that, that God has called everybody into this in-depth study. No, he's given different people different capabilities and gifts. Some of you are so smart, way smarter than, than, than myself and, and so many others in the church, and yet you're wasting your mind on video games and stupid maybe even sinful things when god has given you this mind and trusted it to you so that you would use it for his glory to love him with all that you got and maybe you're going you're, you're, you're to go to seminary get that mdiv a phd and and battle against the 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 smorgasbord of lies that has invaded some seminaries and and pushed out the gospel maybe that's you or maybe you're just to teach a Sunday school class and to make a great impact because you love God with your mind in the local church. And I don't say just. I mean, that's, I would say, in my mind, better. But I, I'm biased. I'm a pastor in a local church. Uh, so, so loving God means, means that we, we enjoy God's word like the psalmist in, in Psalm 119 who says, the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's how you look at God's word if you, if you love God with your mind. It's, it's your light, <laughs> To love God with your mind is to think deeply about God, to ponder the depths of who God is, and to increasingly realize that he is greater and more glorious than you thought before. It's, it's, it's going to look like this. You come to the scriptures, and, and maybe it's a su- surprising moment. You're just reading the Bible in the morning with coffee, and all of a sudden you come across a passage that reveals his goodness, his grace, his justice. And, and you have that, whoa, He's that much better and more glorious, more just, more holy than I thought he was. And it, it just keeps on happening. That's what happens when you love God with your mind. You, you get that, I, I wouldn't say they're physical shivers necessarily, but just like, whoa! Like your mind is blown by the glory and greatness of God and who he is. Your mind is enthralled with God. So many people, and this includes Christians, are escaping into the things of the world. Now, I'm not against hobbies. I, that's fine you can use them to the glory of God, you know, praise him for them. I praise God. For, uh, coffee is one of my hobbies. Right. I have like five different machines that make, make coffee, the, the pour over, the French press. I got this one that I'm really excited about that goes on the stove. It's not a percolator. It's this other cool thing. It's vacuum press, but enough about that. So I got a hobby, and, and I find myself praising God for this hobby. But here's the thing about hobbies, whether they're, they're sports or cars or fishing, Oftentimes, Christians turn to them to escape from reality. And what are they escaping from? They were sinners headed towards hell, destined for it, deserving it. And yet, actually, God had a plan to save them, and he sent his son to redeem them, and he's reconciled them to him through his son, his son's death and resurrection. That is the Christian's reality. There's no greater reality than that. Why would you ever want to escape that reality? Use a hobby as leverage to to glorify and enjoy God with your mind. Not to escape from reality because the Christian's reality is the greatest reality. And lastly, Jesus says that we are to love God with all our strength. This refers to our will. We are to be driven by our love for God. We are to make decisions Hard decisions at a time. Buy that house, not buy that house. Sell that car, not sell that car. Think about where we live or, or where we're going, where we're going to go to school, because we're stubborn. Because we love God so much that though the world and even people that care about us give us these thoughts and these ideas, well meaning often, we're using our strength. We're leveraging this, this will that God has given us. And I'm not just talking physical. I'm talking our decision-making, our, desi- our, our desire to, to, to go this place or that place. We're leveraging that to love God. So we're making decisions based on our love for God. Now, some of us can be quite stubborn, can't we? <laughs> you know, I, th- I think about husbands and wives sometimes you know, in, in counseling, and I've been guilty of this too. You just kind of, I'm not moving from here. It's not good, not a good place to be, but how about you start praying that God would use that little stubborn thing that's going on inside of you and he'd turn it for good, he'd redeem it and make you stronger so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't shrink back when you're, when you're suffering. You wouldn't shrink back when you're being persecuted. You wouldn't shrink back from taking risks so that you can love God more and display Christ as all supreme in your life. And maybe, spouse, you need to pray for that for your husband and your wife. That, that stubborn thing that's going on and that you get frustrated about, that you fight with him about or fight with her about, would be leveraged, would be redeemed, and God would use that so that they would be stubborn in love for God. This will, this strength. Now, does this love sound anything like your love for God? Is God your greatest passion? Is God your soul's delight? Is your mind enthralled with the things of God? Are you using your strength for Him? Now, if you're honest, to you say, No, I want to if you're a Christian. I, I want my love to be described like that, but I, I keep on you know, a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 5 or 6. In his summary of the greatest commandment, Jesus tells us we, we must see the greatest sin as this absence of the love of God. You know, we, we often think about, in our minds at least, you know, who the greatest sinners are. We put ourselves on, the, on you know, this, this scale, he or she is worse than me. It's, it, it just gets blown out of the water when you start to think about, about this. The, the greatest sin, in light of, of Jesus' summary of this commandment, is the absence of the love of God. Where's your heart this morning? Though it is our supreme duty to delight in God, none of us have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for even a day. I would argue for even five minutes. We have all committed the most serious of sins. We have not loved God as we should. And so, what is the remedy? What's the solution? Is it simply to start. This chant, you know, love God, love God. Just speak positive words into your head. Love God. You go to the Packer game, get everybody in this, the, the, the stadium, just love God, love. I mean, that might be neat, you know, but it's, it's not going to do it. What can and will motivate us to love God? What, what's going what's gonna to motivate the non-Christian to love God? You just go up to them and say, you know what, you're going to hell. Unless you turn from your sin, repent and trust in Jesus, you're going to hell. It, no. See, the fear of of God's judgment, though it serves a purpose and there's warnings in Scripture for the Christian as well as the non-Christian, the fear of God is not going to cause people to love God. What's the remedy? What's the medicine? It's quite simple. It's quite wonderful and I love this. It's the love of God. That's the remedy. That's the love of God is is what causes the non-Christian to, to love God. The love of God is, is what brings the Christian back to God. It's the love of God. The gospel is not love God. Hey, hey you, you want to hear the good news? You got to love God. The commandment here reveals our need for the gospel because as we read this, we say, I, I, didn't, I haven't lived up. I haven't matched this, this all-encompassing love that my Savior says I should love God with. The good news, though, is that despite our sin, despite our inability to love God, despite what we deserve from God, God loves. The Bible tells us the many ways that God has revealed his love to us. He has revealed his love for us in creation. He made us in his image. Why would God do that? So he could have a relationship with us. Why would he want a relationship with us? Because he loves us. We also see God's love. It's revealed in Scripture and we can experience this in his providence. He has cared for us. You, you, Christian, you, you think back to how I mean there are moments in my life that I, you know, outside of the providence of God, I would be dead. Stupid things that I did in college, stupid things that I did after college, even stupid things that I've done since becoming a Christian that I should have just been wiped out. <laughs> like, I, I should be gone. But in God's providence, his loving care for me and for you, he's brought you to this point, either so that you can repent of your sin and trust in him, he's been patient with you, or so that you can enjoy him and, and make much of Christ with your life. And then God reveals his love for us in salvation. Instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he has poured out his love to us in Jesus Christ. I come back to this text over and over again. It does not get old. It is my John 3.16, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. So in the first three verses, Paul, through the Spirit, lays out who we are and what we have done. We're we're evil. We're sinners deserving of death. We have trespassed against God. We have followed Satan and been led by the passions of our flesh. And then we get to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There's a turn, this magnificent, glorious turn that is rooted in the love of God. We did nothing to make this turn, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Christian, you've got to feast on that truth. Oh. God loves you. Scriptures testify. The cross makes it known. It's the exclamation mark on God's love. Another text, 1 John 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Another favorite text. Oh, Christian and non-Christian who the Holy Spirit's bringing to life, I pray right now, hear this text. This is what is going to increase your love or give you love for God. The Spirit applying this great truth, the God of the universe who made you in his image, who you have rebelled against, has condescended, had come, taken on flesh, bore the wrath that you deserved so that you could be reconciled to him. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. This glorious truth, God loves you. A person cannot and they will not truly love the God of the Bible unless they first experience the love of God. They cannot. You can't. You can't muster this up. The dead heart cannot say, love God, love God, love God. I just want to be a better person. That's moralism. That's works righteousness. That's where you're going with that idea. And Christian, don't go there either. If you feel like you're lacking love for God, you know, the place to go, the gospel. The good news that has saved you is going to increase. The more you mind the wonderful, sweet treasures of the gospel, you will grow in love for God with the Spirit's help. You must see, understand, and experience the love that God has for sinners in Christ. After Jesus stated that the most important commandment was to love God, he he adds a second. Only Jesus can do things like this. You know, we get asked a question, you know, pick one of these three. I ask my boys at night, you get, you get an option for one snack. You know, you're not Jesus. You don't get to pick two. And so I give them, you know, ice cream, yogurt, broccoli. They never pick broccoli, and they always try to go with yogurt and ice cream. And they have to, I narrow them, you get one. Well, Jesus doesn't play by those rules. The, the scribe said, what is the greatest commandment? So Jesus says, he gives this preamble, points them to God, who God is. And then after that, he says, here's the greatest commandment. Love God with all you are. Love him completely. Heart, mind, soul, strength, everything. And then he says, before he's done, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe asked for one. Jesus gives him these two. Love God, love people. Here, Jesus quoted Leviticus 19, 18. Our Savior loved to quote scripture. He answered people's questions with scripture. That's the model. That's that's how we ultimately answer questions. We go to the the word and we we look at scripture and we we think about how that question can be answered from the text and we we share it with others and we give it to ourselves because we need God to give us the answers. However, what is often referred to as the golden rule, which is Leviticus 19:18, which is "You shall love your neighbor as yourself," it's referred to the golden rule, has become for many the only rule. <laughs> this is this is what they live by. You know, all religions are basically the same. You know, they believe in God or whatever, uh, and it's all boiled down to this. You know, treat others the way you want to be treated, love people the way you want to be loved, type of thing. And why? Why? Why does this happen? Because left to ourselves, we humans will always try to put ourselves above everyone and everything else, including the God who made us. And so you see, even though we might say, well, it's about other people. Really, it's elevating us. And without the first commandment that Jesus gives, well, who's on the top? Humanity. And so you cannot, you cannot do it. You cannot actually truly love love others. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if first. There's a primacy and order, and Jesus gives it. Unless you first love God as you must love God. You have to. This is the only way that you can love your neighbor as yourself, ultimately. Because you're really just loving them because you want to be loved. Not because you love God first and therefore you love your neighbor. Without love for God first, we will make idols. You know what we will do? We will we will make our spouse, we will make our children, we will make some woman or some man our idol, an athlete, a singer. We will love them the most. The order must be God first. And when the order is right, it's amazing. You look at church history. When the order is right, missionaries go out. Churches get planted. People lay down their life. The martyrs give up their lives, and they're doing it today across the world because they get the order right. They love God so much that they love people like they love themselves, even willing to give up their own lives. When we love God because we've experienced God's love in Christ, God's love for us compels us to love one another. Speaking of Christians' love for one another, John writes in 1 John 4 We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there's this, this flow, this order, and it's stuck. It's vital that you love your neighbor as yourself. But in order to do that, before you can do that, you must love God. Then you can truly love as, as you ought to, your neighbor. So what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul also speaks of this connection between love and the law. And he gives us some examples, and and they'll be familiar ones, of how we are to love our neighbor. He writes in Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We're talking about the law. Paul says, how do you fulfill the law? Love. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so you should see this priority in, in the text, not just in Romans 13, but in our, our passage this morning. The priority, according to our Lord Jesus Christ and to the rest of the scriptures, is to love. Jesus' summary of the law is we must love. You want to keep the law, scribe? What's the greatest? What does everything flow out of? Love. Isn't that wonderful? It's glorious, sweet. You just got to love. Now, you bring sin into the mix and you think about your own ineptitude when it comes to fulfilling this. But, but it's simple. Love. Love the one true God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's our great duty from God. The law is to Love. But what about all the other duties? I mean, if you know the scriptures, there's all these other things that we're told to do. Well, I want to submit to you that they're all ultimately tied back to, fueled by, and connected to love. For example, faith. We talked about that already a little bit. Faith in Christ doesn't happen without love. A person will not trust in Jesus if they don't know God's love or love God. It won't happen. They're not seeing Jesus. They're, they're, They're playing some religious game. It's not true faith. Why don't people trust in Christ? Their hearts have not yet been changed. The Holy Spirit has not yet opened their eyes, given them the heart to believe. Faith is tied to love. There's no faith without love. Think about, Christian, your your own growth in faith. When have you grown in faith? At the same time, your faith has grown I'm convinced your love has grown for God. They're tied together. You love God more, you trust God more. You trust God more, you love God more. They're linked together, faith and love. How can a Christian endure, even be content in all circumstances? What's carrying them through the suffering, the sorrow, the Christian life, the downs and the, 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 the difficulties of the Christian life? Love. Romans 8, 28. And we know that those who Love God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Heavy, difficult texts, especially in the midst of sorrow, and yet there's love in it. It's the love that they have for God. What about repentance? Where does true repentance come from? I'm I'm talking like biblical, throwing yourself on the mercy of God come from, what is it flowing out of? Love. Love. Why does the Christian no longer want to to sin? Because they are amazed at what God has done in Christ for them. They don't want to belittle the gospel. They don't want to make a mockery of their father in heaven. They don't want to defame the name of Christ among the Gentiles and those who don't know who who Christ is. Oh, that's a Christian? Look at how they're living. They want to fight sin because they love God. That's fueling repentance, and that's fueling the Christian's life of repentance. God's word. Why, Why should we read it? Because we love God's word. It's not a chore. It's a delight for the Christian. It should be. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. How does the Christian display their love for God? How do you give to somebody who needs nothing from you? How do you do it? I mean, the perfect example is little children, especially little babies. They they can provide nothing. Yes, they love, they coo, they ca, they... They fill diapers and we get to change them, all that stuff. But but tangibly, there's nothing that little one, and as they grow up especially, can, can give their parent. But one of the great ways that they display their love, and parents, you know this, is by your children simply obeying. Out of love for you, they, okay, mom, okay, dad. And not because you're making them, not because you're forcing them, not because you're you're threatening them, but simply because you've asked them and they love you, and so they obey out of love. We're commanded to pray. Why does the Christian pray? Because they want to speak to their Father in heaven, because they love God. We're told to celebrate the Lord's Supper, something that we'll do very shortly. You know what's happening as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? The Christian is loving God. God. They put the, the little bread in their, their mouth and they crunch it and they're reminded that, that Christ's body was broken for them, that he truly loves them, that they've been forgiven of their sins. And what's welling up in the Christian? Love. And not only just love for God, but love for one another. We're celebrating the, the bread and the cup together. And we're reminded that, that I love you. And not in some cheesy way, but in some cro- Christ cross-brought way. I love you. And I'm celebrating the cup with you. Love Is behind the Lord's Supper. Why do we sing to God? Because of our love for God. Psalm 511. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Why do missions happen? Evangelism, worship. It all happens because of love. Love for God and love for man. Love is behind it all. But oh, it's not some weak, watered-down wishy-washy love. It is deep love flowing out from God to us that we bring back to him. That's the love that's driving the law. (laughs) The closing of this passage exemplifies this whole point of love being primary, of of love being behind it all. After Jesus gives the scribe his answer, the scribe was again impressed. Wow, that's right, Jesus. You're right. It's, It's it's exactly as you say it. You're right, teacher. And then he, he summarizes Jesus without giving the, the mind part of it. And then he adds this, that loving God and one's neighbor is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says the whole sacrificial system, this whole religious ceremonial system that's going to fade away in the coming of the Messiah and will ultimately be pointing everyone to Jesus it, it, it's nothing in comparison to the duty to love God and one's neighbor. But then look at how Jesus responded in verse 34. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You go, oh, that's great. God's getting closer. You know, he's, he's getting closer. Itching, yeah, okay. But he's not in. He's not in yet. He's got this great answer. He's impressed by Jesus. He's, he, he's maybe, this, this guy's awesome. I want to hang out with Jesus. And yet he's lacking something. He, mentally, he's ascended. He gets the truth. He, he has some good theology, but he's lacking love for God. There's one doorway. There's one way into the kingdom of God, and that door is Jesus Christ. And at this moment, this man is not in the kingdom of God because he does not love God. He does not love Jesus. Religion without love, knowledge without love, it's all in the end worthless. You have to love God. And you have to have experienced God's love. And Christian, Remember this, you have God's love. Struggling. Overwhelmed. Maybe even hard-hearted in your sin. Christian, God loves you. Ponder the love of God given to you in Christ. That's what's going to bring you out of your rut. Yes, there's other means that God our Father uses. He disciplines, he rebukes, he brings other believers. But ultimately, what? What's the the central tool that's going to bring you out of of your difficult place? Maybe you need to stay there and God's molding you and making you holy. But ultimately, what do you need? You need to ponder and enjoy the love of God. And non-Christian, there's no hope without God's love. So ponder these things. Let's pray. Oh God, you have loved us. Your word testifies it. We, We don't always experience it the way we want to we don't always understand how you're loving us, but but the truth is there. It's written over all of the scriptures. You love your people. You sent your son to die for sinners. And oh, 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 how we rejoice in your great love. Father, I pray for the struggling Christian this morning that this text about your love, this summary from their Savior, would remind them of what life is about. It's not about sports. It's not about hobbies. It's about Jesus and your great love for them and enjoying that love. And Father, we pray that in the remaining songs and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would enjoy your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.